This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. Well, in our open of this show over the past two-plus years, we've made that claim, pulling back the curtain on the events that shape American politics 110 times before this week. Truth be told, it's a bit of a boast, a crow. As Samuel C. Brownstein, the godfather of SAT prep books and the grandfather of Mark Leibovich might write, a prevarication. The truth is, I left Washington, D.C., the burg fashioned as this town in Mark's new book, exactly 10 years ago, long before YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter democratized and socialized it for we, the unwashed masses. I try to pull back the curtain, and I encourage our guests to be open and candid, to talk genuinely. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but speaking for myself, my insiderness is a decade old, and if I ever had it in the first place. And I'll be candid here, in an age of Twitter, when I can live inside the Twitter feed of Jeffrey Goldberg or Lebo, I feel more connected today to the inside of Washington than I ever felt living there for 12 years in the 90s when I worked in the White House and in the early part of the Bush 43 years when I worked at Penn and Schoen, one of the better known DC political consultancies. Yes, from my perch now in New York, I'm in no better position to pull back the curtain on Washington than the other 310 million people who live outside the district itself and in its surrounding opulent zip codes. And even within that zone, all but a few basis points of the local population have ever been to a party at the former home of Robert Todd Lincoln. And if you have to ask who today owns the place at at 3014 N Street in Georgetown, well, sorry, you're not a member of the club, and neither am I. But Mark Leibovich, chief national correspondent of the New York Times Magazine, does carry that card, having plied his trade there for the Washington Post and the Times for the last 16 years. So even if Lois Romano takes Leibo to task for violating unspoken social codes to the extent that they exist, he is one club member who, with his just-published book, truly does pull back the curtain for all of us. Lebo. Welcome to Polyoptics. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate your having me on, and uh, this is this is one I would not miss. Should we dis- dispense with all the full disclosures that are important for this specific uh, conversation? I, you know, I, well, yeah, I can do it, or you can. Why don't I just say for readers? I mean, because transparency is very, very important, especially for someone who deigns to uh, speak somewhat critically of the culture we have here. Is that Josh and I are the oldest of friends? We grew up three, four doors down. We walk to school every day. We have a personal connection, which is transcendent of, uh, of any number of things. And I would say that uh, of your work, I've read just about everything going back, not just to the New York Times, not to the Washington Post, not to the San Jose Mercury News, not to the Boston Phoenix, but to the Newton South High School, Denebola. Really? I, I think you probably might be the only one. I still I have it in I'm, boxes somewhere. Thank God that's I, not on the Internet. That's what I say. I think I may be a... Uh, a uh, reader, a circle of one in that score, maybe <laughs> maybe John Steffens, but I don't think he's read a lot of the San Jose Mercury news. Um, he probably claims to. Uh, I have to ask you, end of week one of publication, I've read just about everything that's come out um, as well. How's it going for you, one week in of publication? It's been pretty surreal. I mean, I think as everyone has 
warned me, it, it becomes a blur, and, and I've been scheduled just to the hilt, and I'm just not sleeping a lot. Um, it seems great. I mean, I have to admit, I, I entered this process with a lot of, frankly, dread. I mean, I thought that this book was going to, I mean, I, I, I think it, it's being read as controversial. It's being read as a takedown. Uh, it clearly goes after people. Um, so far, I think the response has been kind of, um, if not muted, a, a little bit just non-existent. I mean, I think I've heard some things you know, privately from people. Some people are obviously aggrieved. But look, I mean, as I've said all along, I kind of welcome the discomfort. And if that um, if that leads to something, great. But no, it's been fun. I mean, I'm really trying to enjoy it. I'm just not sleeping enough, but I'm trying to be smart. Here's one thing that readers and listeners to The Spin ought to take in mind when they either go to Barnes & Noble and buy the hard copy or get it digitally, which is this is not just a straightforward writing book. Uh, and that's and, and anyone who's read Lebo in the New York Times uh, has to appreciate that this is his particular brand of writing, uh, even amped up uh, several notches, so that if you go back to Richard Ben Kramer and what it takes and what it actually took to become a presidential candidate and win the White House, if you go back to anything that's been written by Michael Lewis and you read Lebo about what it takes to be a member of the club, this is real writing to be enjoyed as much as it is to be discussed for the substance of it. So, great read. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I think, first of all, I mean, this is not false humility. I mean, I, you're putting me in the class of, of, frankly, royalty, and I would I would never do it myself. But I mean, look, these are my idols. Um, Michael Lewis, especially, is, is someone who I think is just incredibly gifted at characterizing a world. I mean, one thing I've, I've said here is, is that I'm not going after one individual in particular, one one party, one institution. I'm trying to create for people a world and flesh it out in a way that hopefully furthers their understanding of it. And I hope that you haven't been too troubled by the intense uh, competition that the book publishing world has given you this week, I think with the publication of Growing Up Gronk. <laughs> oh, did that come out this week? I, I would say this. Um, Growing up, Gronk is uh, is something I, I haven't read. Uh, I haven't read any reviews, but I would urge book buyers also to to uh, go buy Grow Up Gronk because it's been quite a difficult off season for Patriots tight ends. Um, Gronk's had something like seventeen surgeries, and of course, we all know about Aaron Hernandez. So, uh, yeah, about th- th- throw a bone to Gronk and read his book. Well, in full Tim Russert form at the end of the show, we'll get full into Boston sports, so don't worry I, about that. I should that. hope so, or Buffalo uh, sports. But let's begin with the beginning of uh, This Town by Mark Leibovich and talk about the portrait that you paint of the Tim Russert memorial service at the uh, Kennedy Center. And I want to begin just with a clip from probably the day after Matt Lauer on the Today Show. But just think of the feast that awaits him. Right now, he's probably making a list of all the powerful people the former presidents, the senators, the members of Congress, sitting up there in heaven's green room, lining up for the chance to go toe-to-toe just one more time with Tim. He's probably already made the booking calls. He's lined up one heck of a panel for tomorrow morning. And as always is the case, he is doing his homework. He's getting prepared. When that red light goes on, he'll be at the top of his game. He'll shoot from the hip. He will take no prisoners. God, what a show he will have. Mark Leibovich, <laughs> how does that fit into your thesis of this town? Well, um, I, first of all, Tim Russert was a giant. He was the mayor of official D.C., and, and his death was was tragic and, and deeply mourned, you know, rightfully. And 
I, I started his death because I thought that his death was obviously a seminal event. His memorial service was a major pageant. Uh, it was covered on live television. It was a networking festival also. But uh, the clip you just played is is emblematic, I think, of a, um, <laughs> for, for lack of a better term, a, a kind of self-centeredness of, in this particular case, the media business in which we would think that God's place of eternal reward, heaven, uh, precisely mimics the layout of a network studio. Um, and, and that's kind of a recurring trope throughout the book. Uh, you have things like when Andy Rooney died, uh, Scott Pelley said, I guess, I mean, he compared him to Cicero, and then he said, I guess God needed a writer. Um, and then I sort of say somewhat cheekily in parentheses, apparently CBS did not because they had let Andy Rooney go about a month before. Um, but there is, again, a recurring trope of of everyone sort of imagining heaven to be exactly as we in Washington experience it. When when Mike Wallace died, a number of people were tweeting from Washington that uh, he was now sitting up in heaven asking tough questions. Tough questions were yeah. being asked. Yes. Uh, and in your process, because some of the criticism that Romano uh, aims toward you and has been aimed toward you is how dare you go to uh, sort of not necessarily private but personal events with your reporter notebook in hand. And I know you well enough, and I've seen your scrawl, uh, to know that it is not a, a precise art. And I'm just wondering if maybe something in the grandfatherly Brownstein blood allows you to have this incredible memory for detail, or are you sitting in your pew or your seat at the Kennedy Center writing? How does he, how do you get all the detail back? Well, first of all, I mean, I, I guess this is a very important distinction that I made with Lo- or I tried to make with Lois several times, and and she really she was didn't. Not very pleased. Well, she just didn't get it or didn't want to get it. I mean, there's a video interview that ran with that story that anyone can watch. But no, I mean, she, I don't. She looks like, sort of like a captive, like a reading a a, a uh, like a hostage tape. Yeah, I was. I mean, look, it was an interesting. It was an interesting video. I think people should watch it. Um, but. Ultimately, I mean, this is an extremely important distinction, which is that I don't violate private confidences. I don't violate private conversations. I mean, when I enter into a set of ground rules with with a source or a subject, I I honor them. And any journalist who doesn't um, should expect a lot of grief and backlash and shame. So what she was criticizing me was, was having violated the old unspoken code of people going to dinner parties and then not talking about it. Now, that code, I think was operational back in like 1973 when hypothetically I guess Henry Kissinger might have been at a dinner party in Georgetown with uh, I don't know uh, Ben Bradley or something or John F. Kennedy was at a dinner party in Georgetown with Ben Bradley a decade earlier and nothing was discussed the next day. This is a world that I don't belong to. I don't think anyone belongs to it and frankly these are parties that she speaks of that are hardly intimate. These are parties that I am availed of through blast evites that go to about 500 people. These are parties that are covered by Politico and videographers are videotaping other reporters. Uh, they're covered the next day. In the case of Russert's funeral, they're covered by you know live television, by any number of things. So I mean, when I, the details I rely on are, are are fully reported. I mean, these are journalistic details. I check them. And in the case of Russert's funeral, I mean, it was such a spectacle. I do remember taking notes on my program, but, but the bulk of my reporting for that was retroactive and just going back to people and getting their own testimony. So it, it's not as, it's certainly not as Lois characterized it. I, I think um, there's a, if, if anyone buys that, that, that 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 notion, I mean, you, 
they need to know that I do not violate these private conversations. And if I sound defensive, it's because it really is the core of what print journalists or any journalist does. Well, let's move then to someone who I think has been remarkably candid after his government service. I want to hear a little bit. The Russert funeral was in June of 2008. Uh, we skip ahead to early 2009, a brand new White House press secretary on the podium, and he's interrupted by his boss. Let's hear Robert Gibbs. So I think we've heard from people that it is obviously um, it's important that we not just deal with this uh, in the coming few weeks, whatever that might be, but understand that this is the likely course that this will take. Uh, we could see this again in the fall, in the beginning of flu season. Right. Virus, as the president said, right. first time I believe. And hey. I'm trying to get screwing this thing up. <laughs> you know, there's a job to do. Please, everybody, have a seat. There's a job to do. You got to do it yourself. See you guys later. Have a good weekend. Doesn't that sort of define the Barack Obama relationship with the staff that you discovered over the last four years? Uh, interesting. I mean, Gibbs is, uh, I think, kind of an interesting and, and, and great character. I mean, he and the president seem genuinely close. Uh, the president is also someone who thinks that he can do his, he can do your job better than you can, and he might be right. I mean, he has said that, uh, I guess in David Pluff's book on the 2008 campaign, he said, I am the top political strategist on this, this campaign, or something to that effect. Uh, I think he actually really does believe that he could probably be a better spokesperson, he could be a better policy um, advisor, and, and what have you. But no, I mean, Robert Gibbs is a, is a fascinating character in that he he had a pretty mixed run uh, as the White House press secretary, and and he is emblematic of the times. And that in the two years since he's left, he's been able to bring in uh, two million dollars in paid speaking fees. Uh, I don't know what his network deal pays, but I'm sure it's it's quite a bit. Uh, consulting fees, and this is a marketplace that didn't exist uh, certainly 20 years ago. And what has it been like working with people like? Axelrod and I say working with because you would mm -hmm. you would spike that out because they'd hate to think that they were working this with you. This is not a collaboration, right? But, well, I would hate but, to think that I'm working with them. I mean, it's, right. But anyway, well, it's a construction that that a lot of people, especially in PR, uh, no, no offense. Uh, yeah, yeah, use. yeah. Right, right. I, I I am I am the very embodiment of. It's the all right, that, man. Uh, <laughs> a transparency is all. It's good. I am the Steve McMahon of, of New York City. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I hope you're paid as well. No, uh, probably not. But. Uh, but when you think about the conversations that you've had with David Axelrod, uh, David Plouffe, Robert Gibbs, Dan Pfeiffer, and the no and the quote that has been often talked about, Washington didn't change, it changed us, that you ascribe to Gibbs, to outside of what you've written in the book, what do you think of the evolution that these people have had since they signed on with Senator Obama and have now made Washington their home? I, I think the evolution is such... I mean, without casting any judgment on it, because I, I would love to do that well. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I think all of us would. But I think what they are doing is that they are affording themselves of the marketplace that exists. Again, if you can become a celebrity brand and anyone who's going to be on TV that much or who's going to be written about that much as they were in 2008, 2007, is going to have those opportunities, they're going to cash in. And it's it doesn't seem like a lot of hard work. Um, I mean, it, maybe it is just sort of flying all over the country to talk to any number of trade groups for whatever the, the speaking fee is. But I, I think what's what's distinctive about the Obama brigade is that they were supposed to be different. I mean, 
then-Senator Obama used to say that there are two kinds of people, those who are in it for the money and those who are in it to make change. Um, they were very sanctimonious about uh, no lobbying in the White House. We're not going to opt out of the campaign finance system. This was in 08. We're not going to deal with super PACs. This was in 2012. Uh, you know, again, no lobbyists in the White House. We're going to shut the revolving door, blah, blah, blah. And and look, <laughs> all these never, never minds build up and they demoralize people who want to believe in, in hope and change and idealism. And yes, they're allowed to change their mind, break their promises, whatever you want to call it. But I, I think one of the cumulative effects of a book like this is to really lay bare what just just how this all feels over a long period of time and i think frankly this is one of the reasons people are so demoralized with both parties because there is this two step and there is this step there there is this notion that everyone always sort of has their eye on the next gig and their next gig their next gig is not something predicated on public service well let's talk about the two step for a second because i need to make one other disclosure which is should be obvious to anyone who's been to the website polyoptics.com and has listened to this show over its prior 110 episodes that if you look down the right side of the sheet on the page and you look at the guest list in alphabetical order, yes, it includes Mark Leibovich twice, but it also includes 100, 200 or so other people who are part of this club. And I like them a lot. Mike Allen has been part of it. Uh, Bob Barnett has been on this show. And these are people who I've had relationships, some transactional, as Lebo might say, over 25 years or so. Uh, but I want to hear a little bit of Bob Barnett at a, uh, a symposium he gave at the Clinton School in Little Rock, Arkansas, about debate prep and talk about Bob's particular role in this two-step process. I think a candidate wins for him or herself when he or she presents their positions in an articulate, concise, and hopefully anecdotal manner. I think what you want to do in responding to questions in this unique short form debate format is make sure you're ready to and successful at getting your thoughts across. And if you can get your thoughts across by telling a story, that's all the better. Mark Leibovich, what was the tension of putting Bob Barnett into this book? Well, I mean, I guess the tension is that, that Bob, first of all, is extremely powerful and, and represents you know, Democratic presidents, Republican presidents, first ladies, vice presidents on down, and about 400 uh, broadcast media people and lobbyists and pretty much everyone. I mean, he, he really he, he's called himself or he has been called the doorman to the revolving door, and he has been a one-stop shop to help public figures essentially cash in on book deals or TV deals or consulting deals or board memberships and things like that. So Bob is um, a king. Bob is someone who has always been treated very, very well in certainly by the press um, and quite often, I mean, these are not always, there's not a lot of separation between people Bob represents and sometimes the people doing the reporting on them. Sometimes it's their bosses, sometimes it's their colleagues, what have you. Uh, Bob also has this side career as a debate prep person, and it's a very important uh, part of his portfolio, of his brand, and he likes to be known for as the debate prep guy, and he should. I mean, he's a he's a lawyer, he's a litigator, he's done this for years, and, and he's obviously someone who's very valuable and very experienced in this. Um, 
I mean, I think my experience with Bob was was somewhat uncomfortable because I I took some shots. I mean, I I portray Bob essentially as an agent, as an operator. Um, he prefers to be known as an attorney, as a counselor to presidents, um, as a debate advisor. Um, I, I think in Washington, everyone has their story, everyone has their brand, everyone perceives themselves as you know as anyone would like. Anyone, everyone has their ideal version of how they should be perceived, and then someone like me comes along and writes maybe a counter story. It's going to be uncomfortable. I mean, I haven't heard from Bob, but I, I assume he he's not happy with how it's been characterized. But no, Bob is an extremely powerful guy, and um, I don't doubt that. And I'm sure his business will do fine. You know, no matter what I write about him. Yeah, I mean, it seems that that the way where you document discomfort with him it seems to come from Axelrod, Pluff, Gibbs and Pfeiffer and not from the rest of Washington that they particularly didn't seem to want to have him around their debate prep but yet he seems to have been an integral member of every other debate prep yeah. situation. Well so the story of, of, of Bob and the Obama people is they I mean he was a big Hillary supporter he's been a Clinton supporter and loyalist for many years uh, so he supported Hillary in 08, and then when Hillary dropped out, he he tried very, very hard to, to get into the Obama debate prep world so he could counsel the then-about-to-be Democratic nominee uh, on his debate prep against John McCain. And the Obama people wanted nothing to do with him. I mean, he was the epitome of what they supposedly were running against, which was uh, the revolving door, which was everything that Hillary represented, which was everything... Uh, about how Washington operates. And um, so they tried very hard to keep him out of the debate prep, and eventually they gave him a small role um, involving you know, podium negotiations or size of things like that and temperature in the room. And Important stuff, I would say. Very uh, important stuff. Um, yeah, I, 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 <laughs> maybe. Uh, but the but the takeaway here is that Pluff, Axelrod, Gibbs, all were very vocal about, again, this is exactly the kind of guy we're running against. Keep him out of here. And then as soon as the campaign over, it was over, they all signed on with him, and, and he helped them all cash in. Um, right. Again, it's their right. I'm sure Bob got good deals for them. Uh, Bob represents the president. And so <laughs> that's sort of how it works. I mean, Bob, I mean, it, it, the any idealism sort of stops short at the, at the bank. Right. Let's talk about another... Uh interconnected relationship in Washington. I want to hear uh, one little pull from the TAMCAM, Tammy Haddad, interviewing Lynn Cheney about the then-vice presidential candidate, Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin, McCain campaign, picked Sarah Palin to be VP. Could you see her living in this house? You know, I've thought of it many times. It's a great house. Now, some of the kids might have to bunk together. <laughs> but on the whole, what a great house for a big family. The wonderful yard where everyone can run around and be safe. It's a uh, I would look forward to that very much. I do look forward to it very much. Have you much. met her, by the way? Only once, and you know, I was impressed, but still I had no idea that she would be our vice presidential candidate. I was really stunned when John McCain picked her. Lebo, it sounds like the Naval Observatory is like our Sugarbush Ski House. <laughs> you know, I never went up to the Sugarbush Ski House. I was never invited because I never you skied. Part, I, I you weren't part of that club. I, I wasn't part of that club, but I really... The Blizzard Club, I think we would call it. But I think... Um, yeah, I, I should have skied before my knees like went out. I, it, it's the, the times I've skied, I've thoroughly enjoyed it, but I'm always worried that the next ACL is going to tear. 
So Tammy had had uh, getting Lynn Cheney in the Naval Observatory. What does that tell you about Washington in this town? Um, I think it tells you that Tammy Haddad and Lynn Cheney are neighbors on the Eastern Shore, uh, but I, 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 that could be wrong there. I mean, I think they are, but I, I don't think I think that's beside the point. Now, Tammy is this basically this woman about town. She's a party host. She's a former producer for for Chris Matthews and Larry King. She. I guess consults for a number of media organizations. She she has parties that everyone wants to go to, and Tammy is a force of nature. She is someone who has made Washington work for her in in a capacity that didn't exist again twenty years ago. I mean, she's making a very very good living and has built a very good business by consulting with, I guess, by consulting with people and by media organizations and helping them. Uh, to put on parties or promote things or do video things. It's not really clear sometimes what she's doing, but she's done very well for herself. So Tammy is a is a is a character. One of the great uh, parts of this town is the bits of backstory that you fill in. And reading it, I hadn't known the Tammy backstory from Pittsburgh and the emergence of Haddad trucks, which is a prevalent uh, prominence here in New York City with every film shoot on every corner of Greenwich Village. But how? Despite the the sort of pictures that you paint of them in their current day, what has been the process of you trying to fill in where these people come from, their maternal influences, their paternal influences, their their geographic backgrounds? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't get into a lot of that. I mean, I think part of it. Um, I mean, in Tammy's case, I didn't know any of that had had mover stuff, or I didn't know about her her upbringing in Pittsburgh. Uh, and when I was when I was reporting this, I, I asked her, and and it was all. It was all news to me. Uh, the Haddad Movers is pretty interesting because I thought, I think the way that those trucks in New York just block entire streets, they just sort of insinuate themselves yep. into these busy, traffic areas, and suddenly the traffic is all the more all the more worse, is a perfect metaphor for Tammy, not in the traffic, but that how she insinuates herself into the middle of big, busy groups. Um, speaking of backstories, I want to hear a little bit of a clip from uh, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid on the Senate floor talking about Barack Obama's opponent in 2012, and then you really do understand his backstory. He's refused to release his tax returns, as we know. If a person coming before this body wanted to be a cabinet officer, he couldn't be if he had the re- he did the same refusal Mitt Romney does about tax returns. So the word's out that he hasn't paid any taxes for 10 years. Let him prove that he has paid taxes because he hasn't. The word is out, Lebo. Is the <laughs> word ever really out? <laughs> I, I love that clip. Wow. I mean, what, what the clip didn't have is I think something he said either on the Senate floor or at a press conference afterwards, which is Mitt Romney couldn't be, couldn't be um, elected dog catcher without losing his tax returns. And I think I made the point that it's unclear exactly when the Senate was confirming dog catchers. And then, actually, I think I went onto the Internet and I checked to see, actually, if any communities have dog catchers. And there are some, <laughs> believe it or not. Many of them out west. Um, I don't know how it pays. But anyway, no, Harry Reid is uh, is a piece of work. He's, he's one of my all-time favorite Washington characters in that he has a very, very low verbal filtering device. He's very odd. He says what's on his mind. He's very, very... 
I mean, extremely sort of fetishistically low-key. He doesn't care about being telegenic or getting credit or giving big speeches. He sort of outsources all those vanity uh, points to, to all of his Democratic colleagues or his his caucus, and all he cares about is being in charge. And how does so given all that that he's so untelegenic that he says what I what Amy and I feel are sort of inappropriate things to <laughs> in the Senate floor? Yeah. How does he get the job and keep the job? Because he he is totally, totally, totally into customer service. The customers being his caucus. Um, he will give up a Sunday shot, you know, he'll give up a spot on Meet the Press in a heartbeat if, uh, I don't know, Chuck Schumer or Kristen Gildebrand needs it to uh, to vote on something. He will always relinquish the spotlight, which is ex- which is what a lot of senators really want. And look, I, Senator Reid is someone I've gotten to know over the years. For whatever reason, he's taken a liking to me, and, and I've been to his home, and, and we... Pajamas on or off? Uh, his pajamas were not. Uh, I mean, it was he was fully dressed. Though. This was in the middle of Searchlight, Nevada, which was oh, okay. amazing, though, because he, um, he there's a mezuzah on his door. I remember going right. up to this big house in the middle of the desert and seeing this mezuzah. And I'm like, what's this about? Is this like a Mormon thing? I, I just didn't know. And um, he said, nope, nope, nope. My my wife uh, Landra uh, is Jewish. Uh, we raised our, our her our kids are very proud of their Jewish heritage and. Later, uh, Harry and Landra converted to Mormonism, but I was surprised by that. Anyway, um, yeah, no, no, he's he's a very, very strikingly eccentric guy to a way, in a point that many people don't really appreciate. So I tried and, to flesh that out. And in that chapter of Three Senators, you talk about Coburn uh, and uh, Trent Lott and Harry Reid, right. and they really do seem to come from a different generation and a different geography and where... Uh, your upbringing and your humble roots seem to check out in your in your view. Yeah, well, I think in certainly in the case of, of Senator Reid and Senator Lott, I mean, these are some really hard scrabble backgrounds. I mean, in, in some pretty bad poverty, certainly in in Nevada, Searchlight, Nevada. In the case of Reid, um, Pascagoula, Mississippi. In the case of um, uh, Senator Lott, and I sort of posited the three of those people as emblematic of, of three kinds of senators. I mean, Coburn has been known as the uh, one of the fathers of the Tea Party. He is someone whose hatred of Washington, I think, is genuine. I don't think he will stay after his second and self-imposed last term is over in a few years. Um, he, uh, I think he and Reed despise each other, but they also are oddly of a piece in that they are both extremely self-contained um, pretty outspoken in their own ways, and um, and you know they fight all the time. So it's interesting. Lot is emblematic as a former. Um, by former, I mean someone who has a former job title, in his case, former senator, who can stay in Washington for as long as he wants and dine out on that and make seven figure money uh, for as long as he wants. And and as I say in the book, uh, this town, because we have to mention that repeatedly, uh, former stick to Washington like melted cheese on a gold-plated toaster. I'm now quoting myself. I'm an insufferable author. Now we're getting meta, as you might say. Um, <laughs> well, let's talk about some more formers for a second, formers as characterized in this town. I want to hear a clip, and we we there are so many different pairings of left and right, but here's one of Terry McAuliffe and Ed Gillespie. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you all for coming, and it's a real treat to be here with uh, Ed and Terry. Um, one little secret, I've known them both since they were 18. They both looked the same. They were both students of mine uh, at Catholic <laughs> University, and both very good students, although not thank quite you. as good 
as Tom Donilon. Uh, but close. Well, he's national security advisor. That's right. And I'm in business. Uh, why pick early if that's going to be the case? Does it matter at all, or is this just something that we focus on because uh, we often get bored with everything else uh, that's uh, happening? Uh, and uh, uh, do you think uh, that uh, Romney will, in fact, make an early choice? The speculation is, uh, I think, driven largely by uh, the, the Washington parlor game. This is what people in Washington do, and it fills content, and we're all content providers now. <laughs> We've got to meet the, you know, the demand for that. Uh, but I would, I would just say that uh, I do think it's an important decision. It always is, and, uh, uh, you know, but I'm, I'm not at liberty. The irony is, you know, when I first accepted this, I might have been at more liberty to, uh, to kind of speculate on this front, but uh, given that I have an official uh, role with the campaign now, uh, I'm going to have to take a pass. Sorry, Norm. That was uh, Norm Ornstein uh, introducing Terry McAuliffe and Ed Gillespie at the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition Impact Symposium last year prior to Mitt Romney's selection of Paul Ryan as the GOP running mate. Uh, Lebo, we are all content providers now, and that's Ed Gillespie up on stage, and you can put Jack Quinn in that, you can put any number of people on that, but what about this part of this town? Well, I mean, he's right. We are all, con- well, not we, but I mean, I guess I am a content provider, but but no, I mean, everyone is defined by their brand, and what's interesting about Terry McAuliffe and Ed Gillespie is these are two former party chair, national party chairs. They became fast friends in the green room because they were always fighting on TV uh, over the last decades. And now, I mean, their public debates uh, on TV, uh, they they take their their show on the road. And there are a lot of – so essentially they're business partners. There are a lot of corporations, a lot of trade groups, a lot of organizations that are willing to pay them, you know, 50 grand to to go out and – do their dog and pony show for for them, for their benefit, for their annual conventions, whatever it is. And again, it's it's big business. And it does go to the point that Washington, rather than hopelessly divided, as we might see on cable television or on the floor of Congress, is in fact hopelessly interconnected because uh, there is this kabuki that goes on for entertainment's sake, for lack of a better term. And um, ultimately, the people who benefit most are the kabuki players. Uh, hopelessly interconnected. I want to hear from one sort of connector of, of that. And, and it was strange, Lebo, because I didn't see you at Aspen a few weeks ago. <laughs> I will never be invited to Aspen, especially now. Well, I want to hear Walter Isaacson talking about Albert Einstein. Uh-oh. We think of him as an aloof loner or some scientist. And of course, he's not. He's a passionate, engaged individual. Secondly, his rebelliousness, his willingness to defy authority, his nonconformity. Well, that's a feature of his science. In fact, it's the salient feature of his science. But you notice it's also the feature of his personality and of his politics, whether it's his marriage or his ability to be a pacifist when he's living in Berlin at the beginning of World War I. That ability to defy authority is what, uh, it's sort of like a unified theory of his personality, Mm -hmm. his politics, and his science. So I like trying to show that this is all of a piece. This isn't some guy who was this way as a scientist, but this way as a human being. Uh, Lebo, I was a guest of Walter Isaacson at Aspen a few weeks ago. Uh, he might see you in a crowded room, and he'll, he'll say, "Hey, Matthew, come <laughs> over here." Uh, how, where does Walter play in this in this diaspora? Well, I mean, first of all, Walter Isaacson is a really, really great writer, editor, journalist. I mean, his his books are tremendous, and I would love to be able to do what Walter Isaacson does. Um, 
that said, I mean, Walter is a, a major player. I mean, he is somebody who lives in Washington. He he puts together the Aspen Festival of Ideas. He, the Aspen Institute actually is, is his organization. And he is a convener of, of salons. He is a convener of people. He is someone you see out a lot. And Walter is, is uh, I mean, I guess for lack of a better term, and I've only met him a couple times, he, he doesn't seem that interested in talking to me, which is fine because I think a lot of people aren't that interested in talking to me. But he... He does uh, what I, I make the point in the book that whenever he sees me, he, if he does talk to me, he'll call me Matthew. And I've never bothered to correct him because I say that Walt, uh, Walter is so smart. For all I know, I have been going by the name wrong name all these years. And he is actually correct in that my name is Matthew. And even if he's not correct, maybe my mother should reconsider. That leads me to a quick sidebar because I think it might be in your epilogue or at some point in the book where you sort of wonder aloud why people do talk to you. And there's been so much exposure certainly this week and, and will continue. Do you have any concern about your fundamental product, the New York Times Magazine, and, and how other people will think of you? I mean, you're not you're not the, that reliable person that Teddy Kennedy Jr. thought he could talk to. No, but I never have been. I mean, I, I think uh, my kind of journalism is is known for being different. When I walk onto a campaign plane or into a campaign event or into a Senate office, people know that I am not there to write a spot news story. I'm not there to write an analysis piece uh, in all likelihood. Um, and I am not easily spun. Uh, I'm going to write these stories anyway. And, and I always make the argument, and I would make it now, that uh, the people who I am most sympathetic to are those who are willing to sort of open the door for me and, and show them, not, not only let me in, but, but sort of be authentic and, and talk to me like a human being. Because what people don't realize in politics or in media for that matter, especially if you're around places like Washington for a long time, is that the language of politics is not the language of reality. People don't talk to each other in most places the way politicians talk to other politicians or politicians talk to journalists or people spin each other. It, it's just I, one of my favorite lines ever, and I don't think I've ever said this, but um, there's a great long uh, Rolling Stone piece that, that the great novelist uh, David Foster Wallace wrote on the John McCain 2000 campaign. And after David Foster Wallace died a few years ago, they published that story into a little book. Um, and it's about the McCain 2000 campaign. It's just brilliantly written. But in the foreword to the book, uh, Jacob Weisberg, who's now the, the publisher of Slate, who I guess was an editor for, for David Foster Wallace, uh, wrote in the foreword that he always tells his young political reporters or any political reporter before they go out on the road, don't forget to tell us how weird it is. And... That's always stuck with me because this world is weird. This world is not normal. It is not a face value world. And I think my job as a reporter is to try to live in the space between the story people want you to hear and the real story and to try to get into that gap where hopefully you're adding value to what readers see and understand about these people. I mean, that's a fascinating uh, analysis. And Probably you'd agree uh, a angle or a, a strain of journalism practiced by too few people. I want to hear uh, talking about Rolling Stone a little of uh, 
reaction offered by Michael Hastings to his article, The Runaway General, when asked about it. Certainly, we lost Michael Hastings uh, about two months ago, and his likes may not surface again in this town the way you describe it. Let's hear Michael. When I when I had been reporting this article for a number of months, and I knew I had very strong material, uh, but I did not know what the impact was going to be. I figured it would be, you know, uh, maybe give uh, John McChrystal and his team a headache for a couple days, and then it would be swept under the rug, and uh, I'd lose my access, and we'd go on, and, and I'd write another story. They would kind of think I'm a jerk, and, uh, and we'd go on from there. So in your chapter, Thank You for Your Service, you write about Michael Hastings, Lebo. What does, what does his contribution to this town mean and the lack of it now? Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, I wrote this obviously well before Michael Hastings died, and I only, I only met him once or twice, um, so I didn't know him at all. Um, and and his, obviously his death had no impact on anything. But what was striking to me about Michael Hastings is he wrote what was arguably the most consequential political story of President Obama's first term. I mean, he wrote the story that that affected certainly the course of the war. It certainly it led to the the firing of a, of a decorated general. And uh, it was a huge story. And what was striking to me about it was how people talked about McChrystal's mistake. And they talked about it in terms of, oh, what a terrible strategic move to let a reporter in. Um, what kind of PR people does he have? So people were talking about it, first of all, in terms of process. But then, I mean, Hastings himself was was cast out quite a bit. He was... Uh, a lot of people said, well, he, he, he's violated the unspoken rules. I mean, there's that unspoken rules thing again. I mean, people in the military, I mean, I, people like Laura Logan and, and John Burns, I mean, some of the greatest war reporters uh, of our generation went pretty hard after him and accused him of violating ground rules and, and of just sort of burning people. And those are pretty big charges for a journalist. But I, I was struck sort of stepping back by the circling the wagons quality of that criticism and how Michael Hastings, who's very much an outsider, very much prided himself on being an outsider or, in, in his words, a jerk, um, was just not welcome because he went way too far outside the lines. And obviously I wasn't there. I don't know what the ground rules were. I don't know what went down. But he was very – he was – he was the outsider. And I think what's striking and what you always see in Washington journalism is the biggest stories are almost never broken by beat reporters. I mean, Woodward and Bernstein were outsiders when they broke Watergate. Um, if you think of you know some of the biggest story breaks in the, in the Bush years, I mean, you think of the NSA wiretapping uh, story by my, my colleagues, um, Eric Lishblau and James Risen, or the secret prison story in the Washington Post by my former colleague, Dana Priest, these are non-beat reporters. These are investigative reporters. These are, in some cases, outliers like Hastings. And I think that that does give you a sense of the limits of being um, bound by these unspoken rules that, that obviously are going to generate themselves over long periods of, of sort of mutual dependence and exposure. Now, Lebo, the, the promotion of this town uh really seemed to begin not by you, but by Politico uh, in April around the uh, White House Correspondents Association dinner. And I remember we were going back and forth on email that evening, and you were doing some interviews because, as we all know, the New York Times does not attend the dinner, uh, and neither did you, and you were uh, being asked for some comment. But prior, a story had been written uh, by... Mike Allen and Jim Vandehei. And then interestingly, at the dinner, they become major players themselves uh, in the spoof video that stars Kevin Spacey uh, in his House of Cards role. I want to hear a little bit of the conversation between Valerie Jarrett, 
Kevin Spacey, and then Alan and Van Dye. What on earth happened, Frank? You know I was supposed to sit next to Conan. Well, it's for the greater good, Valerie. Greater good? Please don't tell me it has anything to do with North Korea. Same-sex marriage, cabinet no, no, appointment. No. I'm not done, Frank. Oh, all right, go ahead. Taxes, gun control, the Middle East, cyber warfare, the fiscal cliff, pipelines, education, social security, Iraq, Afghanistan. Look, Valerie, it is not going to happen. Well, then I'm curious. If not me, then who? He's the one that got fired from The Tonight Show, right? Yes, and then he moved over to TBS. Is that a real network? No, but neither is NBC. Look, can't we do better than Conan? Like Jimmy Kimmel? We're trying to rebrand, appeal to the youngsters. Look, I'm sorry, but Conan is the best we can do. Fine, as long as you don't put Pelosi at our table. She keeps trying to friend me on Facebook. Congressman, we don't focus on the masses. We focus exclusively on an elite audience. That said, we'd like Kim Kardashian at our table. Then I need Mike to start wearing pants to the White House briefings. I refuse to wear pants until the president gives us more access. Just do as I say and political gets a Kardashian. Oh, and Mike, what is your home address? Uh, why do you ask? Well, to send you the tickets, of course. Send him to the office. Nobody knows where he lives, Congressman. We mail his paychecks to a P.O. box. Oh, Mike, there's no reason to be nervous. What's your home address? That's great. Levo. Uh, Ed, Ed Henry, Valerie Jarrett, John McCain, John Harris, and Mike Allen all in one video sort of spoofing their roles in this town. They seem to be relaxed about where they all fit in your ecosystem. They do. I, I thought that was, first of all, was hilarious. And um, yeah, I mean, I think to some degree, all of the people you just mentioned are pretty relaxed. I mean, I interviewed all of them. I'm actually, Ed, Ed is a, kind of very much a bit player in the book, but he, um, look, I, I mean, there's, <laughs> People, for better or worse, are are pretty embracing of their role, at least in this particular video. But I think I think sometimes it becomes self parody, and I think you see that inside the White House, you see it in Politico sometimes. And and look, I mean, you have to wonder where the line is and and who ultimately is served. But no, I mean, I thought I thought that was a riotously funny sketch. One sketch that turned out to be not so funny for the person involved and then it sort of turned out to be a good story at the end I guess for him was Kirk Bardella and I want to hear a little bit of the uh, breaking news on NBC, MSNBC's Daily Rundown when Savannah Guthrie and Chuck Todd uh, opine on this newly emerging story. All right, here's a story. Republican Congressman Darrell Issa is now looking into claims that his own spokesperson gave New York Times reporter Mark Leibovich emails that he received from other journalists to use in an upcoming book on Washington's political culture. Now, while sharing the info is not illegal, it's called being called it's being called egregiously unprofessional. Jonathan Allen is Politico's congressional correspondent. And it's my understanding we know that Kurt Bardella, who is the spokesperson here for Daryl Issa, defended himself by saying did I blind copy every email I've sent to Mark Leibovich, the editor here? I guess my question is... We, we cut off <laughs> okay. Chuck and saying, I guess my question is to Jonathan Allen, because I guess my question is to Lebo. <laughs> uh, how did the uh, emergence of this story with Kurt sending you, BCCing you some <laughs> emails, but not all of them, yeah. affect the writing of this town? In the end, I mean, a lot of people said at the time... That well, first of all, you should say that I should. I mean, Kurt got fired. I mean, over that little oh, yeah. scandal. I mean, that little bit he did. Uh, that get little fired. bit he did. I mean, Daryl Issa um, had to put out a statement and fired his beloved uh, sort of surrogate son, press secretary, uh, at the time, and and Kurt hooked on with the Daily Caller, 
a few months later and ultimately was back in Daryl Ice's office before, say, six months and was doing fine, and, and that was that was good. I mean, I think because I was in the middle of that story unintentionally, I, I decided to use it as a pretty long chapter in the book. It became an excerpt in the Times Magazine a few weeks ago, and uh, it was a beginning-to-end narrative. It was a sort of a classic story of a guy who came from nothing, no college education, uh, got his just captured his West Wing captured his imagination and became just obsessed with the tele television version of politics in this day and age, the fast paced sort of chess game. And he uh, hooked on with uh, Brian Bilbray, who was then a candidate for Congress um, near San Diego, special election in 2005. Um, and Bilbray won, and that was Kurt's lottery ticket to D.C. And he, he told me. He wasn't so much a Democrat or Republican. He was an opportunist, and, and the Republicans just found him first. And, and then he just became a very, very effective uh, press secretary. But on one of his tragic flaws was just his ability to get a lot of attention, which is not what a press secretary should do. And um, for better or worse, I was part of that process, and and uh, Kurt became a subject in the book. And I wish him the best. I mean, it's never fun to be involved in something that gets someone fired, but uh, it became a, a classic kind of beginning-to-end Washington story. You end your New York Times magazine excerpt by saying Bardella did not comment for the story. Have you had any communication with him since the book has come out or recently? Um, not for not not on the record. <laughs> I mean, look, he I I did some talking to him around the magazine piece just to fact check and to update things. Um, but it was not. It was all very deep background. Just because I I was I wanted to make sure that everything was still right. I wanted to make sure that um, things were updated correctly because I hadn't talked to him in in a couple of years since he lost his job. So no, so I have had no official dealings with him at all. Uh, and, um, he, I asked him to comment. I wanted him to, to talk for this story. He, he didn't. And it turns out it was probably the right call on his part. Always the right call. I mean, look, I, I thank my lucky stars many times that my time uh, in this town was confined largely to the 90s, largely before any kind of social media. And I remember my tiny little blip of scandal, tiny, tiny little blip of scandal was I think I wrote a long, long, long memo on the imagery and analysis of the first hundred days of the Clinton administration and gave it to Marsha Hale, the director of scheduling, who somehow passed it through the staff secretary and somehow it made it to the Oval Office and somehow it got stamped with the stamp the president has seen and therefore it got subpoenaed by Dan Burton and it included in it a recommendation that Harry Thomason or I, I can't remember, made that the president spend more time on a tanning bed. Can you imagine how that would have gone down oh today? God, that's a that's a that's a politi- that's a full politico right there. That, that's that's amazing. Wow, I wish I'd known that at the time. I wish the internet were here at the time. Exactly, but you can, now you're, you're glad it wasn't, right? Now someone will go down to Little Rock and dredge it out of the archives again. <laughs> it's probably there. Um, uh, there's a a wonderful scene in this in Game Change, uh, the HBO movie about the book by Mark Halpern and John Heilman that shows uh, Steve Schmidt Steve Schmidt pulling Governor Sarah Palin uh, aside into a uh, stairwell to talk about how she will or will not behave on election night. I want to hear that. I want to salute John for everything he's done for this country. It's not going to happen. You're not giving a speech. And why is that, Steve? You're not giving a speech because the vice presidential candidate has never given a concession speech on election night. It's not about you. It's about the country. 
Yeah. Well, there's a lot of things never been done before. Governor, this country has just elected the first African-American president in the history of its existence. And it is the concession speech that will legitimize his succession as commander-in-chief. It is a serious and solemn occasion, and John McCain, and only John McCain, will be giving this sacred speech. This is how it has been done in every presidential election since the dawn of the Republic. And you, Sarah Palin, will not change the importance of this proud American tradition. Lebo, uh, that is Julianne Moore as Sarah Palin and Woody Harrelson as Steve Schmidt. Can you talk to me about recasting your brand after failure as it um, as embodied in Steve Schmidt? Yeah, I mean, first of all, that, that was great. That was some great dialogue. Uh, I think, look, Steve, <laughs> again, I sort of hold him up as an example of uh, of very, very deftly recrafting your brand in the face of a fiasco. And, and, and Steve Schmidt, if you were going to believe a lot of the, I mean, what seems to be uh, what happened in the campaign is that he was the one who, first of all, picked Sarah Palin or suggested to Senator McCain that he pick Sarah Palin. Uh, he also, you know, was in charge of the campaign at the end, which probably largely through no fault of his own was pretty dysfunctional anyway. But he was seen at the helm of that Titanic. It was seen as a terrible election for Republicans. It was obviously historic um, for many reasons, but uh, it was not a great moment for the Republican Party, and Steve Schmidt caught a lot of blame. Uh, and what Steve did ultimately is he, uh, he he's done very very well for himself, at least in the public mind. He he has been, uh, I guess, he was a very very generous source to the to the makers of Game Change, both the uh, the movie and the book by Mark Halpern and John Heilman. And, and the fulsomeness with which you cooperate creates scenes like that and that kind of dialogue. Right? It, it does tend to help. Uh, I mean, I think Woodward is is another example of this. I mean, I think there is a an adage in Washington, which I think, in my experience, seems pretty true, that that the most generous sources do tend to um, get paid back in in more flattering portrayals. But, I mean, look, it's not transactional. I mean, Steve Schmidt is a very compelling figure, and he also... He also, let's face it, I mean, he is a centrist Republican. He's a Republican who's willing to criticize the Republican Party. He's a Republican who's willing to criticize Sarah Palin. He's a Republican who's willing to criticize how his campaign worked. And the media loves this stuff, and especially when a Republican turns on its own. I mean, the, the media loves nothing more than a Republican who moves either center or left, as evidenced by John McCain in 2000. And the the media does tend to be pretty brutal to people who move in the other direction, i.e. Joe Lieberman, who was seen as a turncoat. Um, and, I mean, there are a lot of examples of that. So Steve Schmidt, again, I mean, he's got a great deal at MSNBC. He's making a lot of money. He's got a TV studio in his house in Lake Tahoe. He uh, was portrayed really, really well in Game Change. He is getting a lot of speaking money. He was invited to the White House. He met President Obama, and he's probably been cast out of a lot of, or I know he's been cast out of a lot of Republican circles, but he is, uh, he's done fine. By sort of pivoting to this middle ether, um, Lebo, the last chapter of this town is uh, called The Last Party, and as I began the show in the introduction, I sort of quizzed the listeners about whether they knew uh, who lives at 3014 N Street in Georgetown, and the description that you make of Ben Bradley, the former executive editor of the Washington Post, 
is uh, is very colorful. You talk about this phrase that he keeps telling you uh, as you leave to keep your pecker up, <laughs> and uh, and you also, in a way that you know, you and I both growing up will form these uh, these hazy images of great people. The view of Ben Bradley in in your grand vision is the same as mine, is the same as probably anyone who has not Jason really Robards, met him, right. is Jason Robards and all the President's Men. Let's hear a little bit of that first. Yeah, good notes. Verbatim. He really said that about Mrs. Graham. Well, I'll cut the words of her tit and print it. Why? It was a family newspaper. You know, once when I was reporting, Lyndon Johnson's top guy gave me the word. They were looking for a successor for J. Edgar Hoover. I wrote it, and the day it appeared, Johnson held a press conference and appointed Hoover head of the FBI for life. When he was done, turned to his top guy, and the president said, call Ben Bradley and tell him, fuck you. <laughs> well, everybody said, you did it, Ben. You screwed up. You stuck us with Hoover forever. I screwed up, but I wasn't wrong. How much can you tell me about Deep Throat? How much do you need to know? You trust him? Yeah. I can't do the reporting for my reporters, which means I have to trust them. And I hate trusting anybody. Levo, why did you end this town at 3014 N Street? Well, it was this incredible scene. I mean, uh, Ben Bradley, I mean, it was an idol of mine, um, certainly since I saw all the president's men, but also certainly when I got into journalism. And I uh, spent a lot of my early part of my career just sort of dreaming about what it would be like to work for the Washington Post under Ben Bradley. And, and by the time I finally landed there in 1997, I mean, Ben was in the emeritus wing. He, he wasn't the editor anymore. Uh, got to know him a little bit when I worked there. Uh, got to know Sally Quinn, his wife, a uh, longtime reporter for the style section of the Post, uh, a little bit, and we became friends. I mean, all I mean, Washington friends. I mean, I don't see them a lot, but um, and and so around like late in the year, and I was finishing the book, and I was sort of looking for an endpoint. I think originally my endpoint was going to be the second Obama inauguration, because you have the beginning in June of 08 with Tim Russert's death. I thought a nice endpoint would have been the beginning of the second administration. But this Evite blast comes out, and it says, the last party, and it's from Sally. And I'm thinking, wow, I mean, I mean, I knew Ben. Ben's in his early 90s. He's been suffering from dementia. He, he's been slowing down quite a bit in the last few years. He's not doing well. He's not doing well, right. And he, um, and, and this looked like some kind of send-off. And, and I think most people who received that Evite expected that that's what it was in reference to. And then you clicked on the Evite, and it was uh, a play on the Mayan calendar and the world ending. Remember that whole thing back yep. in December? Um, so that was Sally's you know, little joke. Um, but I think the double meaning there was clear, which is that like, we're gonna have a big, big Christmas party and their annual Christmas party is a big, big thing every year. Uh, and this is going to be kind of a last party for Ben. And so people traveled for this thing. I mean, it was this, it was like, as, uh, I guess is Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who was one of the few elected officials there said, it's like walking into a novel. And you walked in, it was a rainy night in Georgetown, and uh, there was Ben looking just phenomenal and greeting everyone and just completely in charge of his charisma, uh, if not his memory. And, and, and 
uh, it was just these these novelistic characters running around. I mean, you had Colin Powell and Walter Isaacson and Bob Woodward and Bernstein walking in out of the rain and uh, Jim Jones and, I mean, Barbara Walters. I mean, just Alan Greenspan. It just goes on and on and on. And And it was like a big museum piece in real time. And Ben was just so, he just looked so great. And he just, he was there at the beginning. He was there at the end. And it was a very elegiac moment in in some ways because, uh, first of all, there was almost no one from the Obama administration there, which I thought was a contrast to what you might have seen 30 years ago at a party like that where you actually might have had real-life cabinet members or White House staff people or maybe even presidents at a, at a party. Maybe Susan Rice who needed right. some... Well, yeah, Susan Rice, who had just that week been been passed over for Secretary of State, uh, was was there, and which was an interesting, I mean, too little too late, because one of the reasons I think people criticized her is that she didn't know many people around town. But so besides Susan Rice, there was no one from the administration. There were only two elected officials, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Amy Klobuchar, who, by the way, walked into the green room at ABC's This Week the other day, saw me and said, hey, I haven't read your book, but I see that I'm on chapter 13. Because there was a, the Washington Post did an unauthorized index of this. So, um, and actually, it's funny because Stephanopoulos, who has a bit role as as a mentor to Kurt Bardella, walked into the green room and said, "Hey, who would think that my claim to fame would be knowing Kurt Bardella?" And uh, <laughs> it was all very funny. But then, okay, to to actually complete the green room cycle, when I did, um, and listen to me, I'm like I'm like name dropping all these shows. But this is a book tour. When I did CBS this morning on Monday, uh, Gail, Kim, I'm sitting there with Aaron Sorkin. I mean, listen to this, right? It's just, it's insane. In the green room, who was on before me, and Gail King walks in, and sort of this crowded green room with Sorkin's entourage. Gail King walks in and said, "All right, where's Mark Leibovich?" I'm like, "Me." She goes, "Hey, <laughs> keep your pecker up." <laughs> and, and she had marked up the entire book and was just going over page by page things she underlined, things she wanted to talk to me about. I mean, it was like a three-minute segment, so obviously wasn't there. But it was one of the great moments of my life having Gail King walk in and say, hey, keep your pecker up. But anyway, that was a good I, – I thought it was a perfect place to end. Uh, chronologically, it worked. It was the end of an era. It was about the, the dawn of a new administration or a, a new term. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I – it was sort of a love note to Ben, but it was also, I think, a, a really, really vivid picture of a Washington that was, a Washington that might not be existing much longer, and mostly just a pretty vivid scene. Mark Leibovich, the author of This Town. Uh, it, with the bookends of Tim Russert and Ben Bradley, uh, you might want to go, I might want to end this uh, conversation by going back to the old trope that Russert used to always trump out at the end of Meet the Press by appealing to his guests' uh, local sports enthusiasm. <laughs> and uh, we can go a little bit more in the weeds than Rustard ever w- would because tonight or this weekend resumes the second half of the baseball season after the All-Star break. I want to hear a little bit from manager John Farrell about Clay Buckholz and get your view on how the Red Sox go from here. He, uh, over the past couple of days, uh, did not pick up a baseball. He, he shut down uh, over, the, over the All-Star break. He'll be reexamined here tomorrow. Uh, at which time we're hopeful that he would resume the throwing program. And as optimistic as we were on this past road trip, particularly coming out of his work sessions in Seattle, where it felt like he was really turning the corner, um, he's still got some lingering soreness in there. And um, through treatment, through some medication, letting that take hold over these past few days, 
that re-exam will be done tomorrow. And like I said, hopefully that throwing program will start back up either tomorrow or Saturday. Levo, it's a polyoptics trademark to use managerial press conferences for your reaction about how the Red Sox <laughs> will do the second half of the season. Uh, I'll make this point as a citizen of Red Sox Nation, and that's a term I hate, but I will use it for the purposes of our conversation here. The um, Just like you feel like you're just as connected to Washington from afar, just by way of Twitter, by the Internet, um, maybe even more so than you did when you were actually working in the White House, I would say that I, it's a real pleasure to follow the Red Sox from afar because you don't have to deal with like the talk radio idiocy and and sort of the day to day drama of of following the team. I, I love picking and choosing and going onto the internet and watching games when I can. Uh, one of the casualties of this book has been I, I just haven't had a chance to follow them as closely this year. But I think uh, look by all counts, it's a great team. I, I have on the times I've watched them, I've really enjoyed it, and um, they're they're easy to root for, which is much more so than you could say about the last few teams, so last few years. So I'm all for it. A little harder to root for has been the most recent editions of the New England Patriots, and uh, this week CBS uh, had the Gronkowski family on set, and I want to hear a little bit of the interview with Don Daler uh, and Gronk and his kin uh, uh, as the publication uh, juggernaut of Growing Up Gronk uh, started to take hold. I do have to ask you, when you heard about Aaron Hernandez, what, what you thought, what your reaction was? Uh, next question. <laughs> I learned that from Drew Rosenhaus. Next question. With, with it had to be a shock for you, though. It had to be shock for all your teammates. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> all right, then I'll ask you. It seems to me that these two men played on opposite sides of the line, but they had more than that in terms of being opposites. And I truthfully, I'm not going to go. Down. Yeah, I'm not going to go there. Right now. <laughs> Don't walk off. Right now. I'll change the yeah. subject. Yeah, yeah, change it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can't go there with yeah. that. Lebo, Gronk was going to walk off the set <laughs> and ch- until Dollar said, I'll change the subject. What's your view of the, the, uh, the Imbroglio Hernandez? Nice use of imbroglio. You've been reading well, the Barron's books Sa- again. Yeah, yeah. Samuel Brownstein. <laughs> I think back that's where I learned the word, too. Um, I think that's probably a preview of training camp. I want, the question is how many how many next questions are you going to be hearing throughout the Patriots locker room to say nothing of Coach Belichick's press conferences? I mean, I guess, wow, they might not be as colorful now. Exactly. <laughs> you might even get a little less from Belichick. Yeah, if that's possible. Uh Finally, on the uh, the other uh, team that we'll pick up in the fall, we thought the Celtics were really headed uh, downhill once we lost uh, all of the last big three and our coach. Brad Stevens then gets reintroduced uh, by Danny as the new head coach. Let's hear it. As any young basketball fan was or is, um, just in awe of the Boston Celtics, the Boston Celtics organization, and all that has been accomplished by the many players, coaches, and everybody else that has worked in this building to help them do what they've done in the past. Lebo, what do you think of the Celtics this fall? Uh, I don't think they'll be very good, but I think one of the depressing things about getting up there in age as we are is you reach a certain bunch of landmarks. I mean, one, I remember the, how, how weird it was to realize that, hey, I'm actually older than some of these Red Sox players that, that I'm rooting for. have been that way for 15 years. Yeah, and then you sort of get to a point where, hey, I'm actually older than some of these coaches. And now we've reached a point where, hey, I'm like 15 <laughs> years older than like one of these coaches. <laughs> so what's next? I mean, grandchildren? I mean, it's a, it's a pretty scary thing. I mean, look at that guy. He's like he's 12 years old. I know. 
Well, let's let's go back in time to when we were 12 years old. Here, a couple seconds of uh, one of these great Boston sports montages that you can still get online and, and take a quick trip back. Tom Brady, the Cinderella story of the NFL. Deep to right field, number 44. The man who definitely needs no introduction, number four, Fabio. The Celtics are the world champion. Number nine, Hall of Famer. Clemens has set a major league record for strikeouts. Boy, he can make that fuck new crack. We are all Patriots, and tonight the Patriots are world champions. Thank you, Boston. I love you. Lebo, if they uh, if they say that you never can have lunch in Washington again, Boston will welcome you back with open arms. As long as Barry's Village Deli will have me, I'll be happy. Mark Lebovich, author of This Town, out this week. Pick it up at, uh, at your bookstore or at Amazon.com or any other places that digital books are sold. Lebo, thanks a lot for coming back. Thank you, Josh. He gets it out deep and Hamilton takes the